You know, I've heard a lot of uh, older ministers, preachers say that uh, there have been times that they've prepared to preach and they just get a sense that the enemy is working against them, that they don't want, you know, the, I mean, everybody here should know that we do have spiritual forces at work all the time, um, evil forces that work against us. And you, uh, you, I had a sense of that this week. Like, I didn't, that this sermon shouldn't be preached. And as I, as I thought of that, and I'm not trying to make too much of it, but you guys remember me saying something this past week in the update video, right, about like sharing sermons. It's never been easier to get God's word in front of people. And, you know, you can just go and you can get a link and you can text somebody a link. You don't have to send them anything in the mail. You don't have to see them and hand them a CD or anything like that. It's really easy to get God's word out there. Well, we have evil forces at work that do not want that to happen. And we have to be able to recognize that fact, don't we? And so just coming into this this week especially, I just am, am mindful of the fact that we have we have an enemy who seeks to work us woe, as, as Martin Luther once said. He wants to keep us asleep in our spiritual stupor. And he can't take us. No one can snatch us from the Father's hand. But he can, he can tempt us to be useless, <laughs> right? So with that, we're continuing to move through the Sermon on the Mount. We're picking up this morning in, in Matthew chapter 6. Remember, we began in chapter 5 where Jesus started with the Beatitudes, talking about what his people were to be like. We are to be like him. He's talking about what life in the kingdom of God, which has come and continues to come, looks like. And then from there, he specifically addresses six abuses of the law by the Pharisees, six specific teachings about the law that they believed because that's what they were told. And Jesus basically says, yeah, I know what you heard, but I say and, 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 what he's, and what Jesus says is what was written from the beginning. He's straightening out what's been bent out of shape by the religious leaders of the day. And essentially what he says is, that's not what life in my kingdom looks like. It doesn't look like anger and hatred towards your fellow image bearers of God. It doesn't look like insatiable lust in the eyes and hearts of men that gets a pass because it's not adultery. He says, no, it is adultery. It doesn't look like throwing your wife away when you see something you like more or when you just get tired of her and don't want her anymore. You don't just dismiss your own flesh with a certificate of divorce. That's evil. I don't care what you heard. My kingdom doesn't look like lying and swindling people and saying it's all right because I didn't swear upon the name of the Lord so it doesn't count. He says, no, you profane the name of your Father in heaven by your lying. My kingdom doesn't look like a bunch of petty people arguing over what's theirs and what's fair and trying to get even with each other all the time. No, Jesus says, my kingdom shines in the darkness like a city set upon a hill and you will know it when you see it because people will have control over their passions and they will love their neighbor and I will bring healing to their land in a way that you can't even fathom. Jesus has called his disciples to be righteous. He calls us to be righteous. 
because our righteousness is to be seen. It is evidence to a fallen world of his rule and his authority. It is evidence of his kingdom and our belonging to it. But now look at his warning, okay? Look at his warning about our righteousness where he he moves on in chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. Hear now the words of the one true and living God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens, and when we look at the work of your fingers and creation, the moon and the stars which you have set in place and that you know by name, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? But Lord, you have revealed yourself to us more clearly in your word and by your spirit that we may know you. You have revealed to us in your holy scriptures your will for our salvation, and you have given us your son in order that we may be called, given the right to be called the children of God. Thank you. Help us, Lord, to cherish your word this morning, and I pray that you would use it to encourage us, to challenge us to edify us and strengthen your church for your glory and our good, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember what Jesus is saying in the previous passage leading up to this about uh, loving those who love you? And he says, what good is that? You know, how's, how's that any different than what anybody else does? And he tells them, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Remember, the Pharisees lowered the bar for them. Jesus says, no, the bar's up here. Now, now here's where I have to take a little detour so I can keep things untangled before we get too far into this. It slows me down a little bit. I, I don't like to have to do it. But if church history has taught us anything, it's this, that misunderstandings of the relationship between the law and gospel have wreaked havoc on the church. So it's worth the time it takes. It's worth repeating. Jesus' statement, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Did he mean it or didn't he? And if he did, what did he mean exactly? Here's what we do. We say, well, no one's perfect. So he couldn't really mean be perfect. Or we say, well, he meant it, but he was really only talking about himself because he is the only perfection that the Father requires. Or we say, he may, I have to measure up. Or, or God won't accept me. All of those are either wrong or incomplete answers, and people drawing conclusions based on those wrong answers or incomplete answers is how we end up with a lot of bad theology in the church. Jesus meant what he said. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He wasn't speaking figuratively. 
He wasn't only talking about himself, and he certainly wasn't talking anything about salvation in that passage, so it wasn't about measuring up or being worthy. Here's what it means. Jesus doesn't lower the bar like the Pharisees did. He's just laid out six different ways, hasn't he, that that they've lowered it. And every time he's pointed back up into the sky to show them where the bar has been all along. And we strive for that perfection because that's what our God is, and we are to be like him. And striving for anything less would be an insult to God and useless to us and those around us. So Jesus has called his people to be righteous, to to stand out, to be different, to be self-controlled and humble and discerning, having a a self-awareness and a situational awareness that is informed by heavenly realities making their home here on earth. So yes, Jesus has called his people to be righteous. He's not just called them to let go and let God. He's called them to be righteous for God's sake. But just in case they're tempted to practice the kind of self-righteous righteousness that the Pharisees did, Jesus qualifies it here beginning in chapter 6. That's what he's doing. Your righteousness is performance for God, not men. And your righteousness is evidence for men, not God. That's, those are like the two main points of the sermon this morning, and here's the main idea. Declare Christ's righteousness and not your own. Because that's where, that's, that's where we get sideways. That's where we're guilty of becoming like the Pharisees. When we perform our righteousness for men as evidence to God that we're worthy. See how that's different? I'm going to say that again because I don't want you to forget it. We become guilty of the same sort of self-righteousness the Pharisees were guilty of when we perform our righteousness for men as evidence to God that we're worthy. That's backwards. We perform our righteousness out of a love for our Father as a response for his, of his love for us. And our striving to please our Father, our striving to please our Father, again, not for salvation, We've already been over that. I'm not going to do it twice in one sermon, okay? Not for our salvation, but a striving to please our Father no matter who is looking is evidence of the kingdom of God on earth. Our secret service to God gets noticed, and it should be. We don't try to bring attention to ourselves. We try to bring attention to God, and in doing so, he makes himself known to the nations. So point number one, righteousness your righteousness is performance for God and not for men. We don't perform our righteousness to be admired by men. We perform our righteousness for God because we love him and we love to do what is pleasing to him. I'm not an old man, but you know how many men I've met in my life who grew up without a father? A, a sad number. Or they grew up with a father, just wasn't much of one. In both cases, the father who wasn't there and the one who didn't care. Do you know how desperate I've seen some grown men be, always have been and still are, of of their father's approval? 
It's all they wanted in the world was their daddy's approval. All they want to know is that their dad approves of them, that, that, that they are seen by him, that they've made him proud. That's what we want to make our dads, proud. And it doesn't matter if the dad's even worthy, per se, of that affection or that admiration. It just ends up being the case. We want to please our fathers. Make them proud. How worthy is your father in heaven? If we have, if we have men eager to please their, their earthly fathers who really aren't worthy of their admiration or respect based on their their, their, the example that they've set for them or their abandonment of them or otherwise, how worthy is your heavenly Father? Do we not feel his pleasure, do we not want to feel his pleasure as, as we do the things that we know he's called us to do? We want that. What we're looking at here in these few verses isn't merely about giving to the needy. I want to make sure to say that, okay? You, you, you might look in your Bible there and see that the heading says uh, something about giving to the needy. Sometimes when we read the Bible and we see chapter breaks and we see headings and things like this, we think God is zooming in on, on this one particular issue here, and then when we see the next chapter break or heading that he's zooming out and then zooming back in over here on this thing. But that, that's, that's not what's happening in this case. It, it's, it's like he's zooming in and, 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 and continuing to scan across, right? We're not missing anything in between. Nothing gets missed along the way. We're traveling along through Jesus' teaching here, not teleporting from one thing to the next, you see? So given everything Jesus has said so far, not just dropping down in this out of nowhere as if he hasn't said all the things that he said leading up to it, given everything Jesus has said so far, the characteristics of the Christian and the Beatitudes, how we relate to the world and how we should expect it to relate to us, how we ought to behave in society given that we have been reminded what it is God expects of his people and his law, what we're looking at now is not an how-to lesson on giving to the needy. It's a picture of the children of God in relationship with their father. Jesus gives this as an example of performing our righteousness for God and not for man. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. That's where he starts, and he picks up where he left off with telling his disciples to be perfect as their Father is perfect. And then he gives this example of giving to the needy to illustrate that point, okay? Don't call a bunch of attention to the fact that you're doing it so that everyone can see you and praise you for it and say, what a swell guy. Right? He says the religious people you see doing that, sounding the trumpets in the streets and in the synagogues to signal their every good deed, they've received their reward. They've received the accolades of men that they were looking for, but that's all they will receive is the accolades of men. Just the, 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 the cheers and applause of men. But you, when you give to the needy, know that you will have an audience of one. An audience of one. Your heavenly father who sees in secret and is pleased when his sons and daughters make him proud. He says, your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Reward you with what? Not salvation. Got that already. And that's only by Christ's righteousness, right? But blessing. 
God smiles on obedience. He rewards selfless acts of mercy that are done merely out of a love for God and a love for neighbor. That's what his whole law points to. No one needs to know but him, right? Not even you. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even take notice of it yourself. You're not doing it for the the notice and approval of men, yourself included. We have a way of doing that, though, don't we? We do it in secret. We don't tell anyone. We don't make a big deal out of it. But we might make a big deal of ourselves to ourselves, right? I'm not like those other people who have to let people see the good that they do. That's where you've blown it already, though, isn't it? (laughs) Because as soon as you start with that, I'm not like those other people who have to be seen for the things. I do mine in secret. You sound just like the Pharisee who said, thank you, God, for not making me like this tax collector. And you say, well, no, it's not like that. I just just do a lot of things that I don't need credit for. That's all I'm saying. Jesus says, that's fine. Stop counting. Stop stop remembering and reminding yourself of all the times that you pitched in when no one else would. And, you know, all the things that you've given away to people in need that never appreciated it. Just stop keeping count. Jesus says, that's not how life in the kingdom is supposed to be. You're supposed to just give freely. You don't do these things quietly and discreetly, right? And then go home and be like, dear diary, there's a homeless man on Assembly Street today. Nobody would give him money, but I did and no one was looking. But you were, you were looking. No one else was paying attention, but you were. your, Your left hand knew what the right was doing. It's always subtleties like that. It's always little subtleties like that where we convince ourselves that we're pleasing God when we're really just pleasing ourselves. Jesus says, live knowing you are always in the presence of God and act accordingly. Act as though you have an audience of one. I'm convinced that if we did that, consistently, even for five minutes, the world would change. I'll get there, but let your righteousness be performance to God alone and not for men. That's point number one. Point number two, righteousness is evidence for men, not evidence for God. It's not evidence for God for our worthiness. It's evidence to man of Christ's worthiness. Your righteousness is evidence of God's transforming power in you, evidence of his kingdom breaking in. We're children of God and citizens of a kingdom that they cannot see, but that kingdom is becoming evident in the world, and how? Through the righteousness of his people. This is why I think the enemy doesn't want sermons like this preached. He doesn't want us taking too close a look at ourselves. He doesn't want us actually believing that our simple faith and obedience can do a bit of good in the world. He would convince us that's much too small. But Jesus says, you are his bride, his church, and not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. The enemy doesn't stand a chance. He's received his eviction notice.
God, help me, y'all. I'm just praying that we wake up this morning. These heavenly realities are making their home on earth. If we fail to see it, it's because we fail to believe it. The late, great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, the Christian should always be anxious to know himself. No other man truly wants to know himself. So he said, in our flesh we avoid real self-examination. We'll, we'll go surface level. But we're not going to go all the way. We make excuses for ourselves. And any time we're being interrogated and asked to face ourselves, our immediate hiding place, the way we shut down the conversation and avoid the pain of humility is to say, get off my back. No one's perfect. Jesus says, yeah, I know. I, I carried your cross on my back because you weren't. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. When our striving for righteousness is fueled by love for our Father in heaven, gratitude for the sacrifice of our Savior, and when our aim is pleasing to God alone, we should expect that people will glorify the God that we serve. It's funny in chapter, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus was talking about being salt and light. We were there several weeks ago. He says, let your light shine before others so that people will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. But now Jesus is saying, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So which is it, Jesus? It's, it, it's both. There's, there's no contradiction. Okay? We don't let our light shine so that people will see us and see our light. We let our light shine so that people will see what we're shining it on. So we're not practicing our righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. We live in such a way that when people see us and see what we're about and see how we treat one another, they'll glorify God. Righteousness is evidence for men, not evidence of how sweet we are. Not, not evidence of of how, how good we are, how moral we are, but how glorious our God is. Remember, God doesn't need uh, evidence of our righteousness. That's the point here. People do. As far as God is concerned, we have all the righteousness we need. Jesus already came and lived perfectly in our place and died in our place for our imperfection. Done deal, right? No evidence needed. Case has been closed. But people do need evidence, and the kind of evidence they need, that there is a God in heaven who rules over all of creation and to whom everyone must give an account is the righteousness of his people. All are naked and exposed in his sight, and judgment looms over them. And you know what signs of life they're made to be able to recognize? The uncompromising, self-sacrificing righteousness of God's people. Not even that can save them. We know only the Holy Spirit can change a sinner's heart. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't come by way of our sterling reputation. It doesn't come by our generous acts of kindness. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. But you know what that righteousness does? It pushes some people away, doesn't it? It pushes some people away but it draws other people in. 
Those who are drawn in by your righteousness, and they might not even recognize it as righteousness. They, they might, not, might not call it that or, or see it as that. And it doesn't matter anyway, right? Because you're not doing it for them. They might not recognize it as righteousness. They may recognize it as just something different about you, a curiosity about what makes you tick, a, a peculiarity, whatever it is, however they describe it, it's attractive to them, and when they're drawn into it, you have an opportunity to tell them what you've been up to, where that comes from, what indeed does make you tick. You remember Nicodemus when he goes to Jesus? He uh, asks him some, some questions. What drew him in? Nothing less than this, that he recognized there's something different about, about this guy. There's something different about this man. And you say, that's no fair. You know, Jesus was performing miracles. So, of course, Nicodemus was like, what's up with this guy? Okay, fair enough. Two things I would say to that. First, what did Jesus say his miracles testified to? Who did he point to and give the credit to for his miracles? He attributed them to his Father in heaven. They did these righteous deeds uh, by, by his father's power, by his father's authority. He, he pointed to the glory of the father. And the second thing I would say is, do you think being born again and sanctified by the one true and living God is anything less than miraculous? Has God not performed a miracle in you? Is there anything more miraculous, y'all, than bringing life out of death? We, we, get, we get excited. We're going through Genesis, aren't we, right? A couple weeks ago, we're in Genesis 1. God spoke everything into existence. It's like he just opened his mouth and started singing and stuff happened, right? That's amazing. The act of creation is amazing. You know what's more stunning than that? Bringing life out of death. What's more stunning than, than, than making something out of nothing is bringing life out of death. That's what you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul tells us in Ephesians, right? But by Christ's sacrifice for your sin, you were buried with Christ in his death and raised to new life in him, and that life speaks life to a world that is perishing. Your righteousness is evidence for men, not for God, but for people. Your, your righteousness, your your good acts, your good behavior. It's like a love song that you sing for God's ears only. At the top of your lungs, however terrible you are at singing, right? It's a love song that you sing for God's ears only. But the fact that you're singing when everyone else around you is crying testifies to a fallen world that there is a dawning of a new day. The coming of a kingdom ruled by an unwaveringly righteous and unfailingly loving king whose name is Jesus. We live in a competitive world that begs us to stand out for our own sake, don't we? That's undeniable. And competition's not a bad thing, right? 
It's not all bad. It's how the cream rises to the top. It's how we as, as consumers uh, get the best of everything that's around. In God's providence, competition is good for us. But in our flesh, our desire is to stand out for our own sake, right? All eyes on me. Look how good I am at what I do. Look how honest I am. Look how much I give. Look at who I voted for. Look at the groups and ideas that I support. Look at the change that I'm advocating for. Aren't I a good human? No. You're not. Apart from the free grace of God that sent his son to die for a wretch like you, you will die, be buried, raised again, and given a body that's built to suffer eternal wrath. That's who you are. Apart from God's saving grace, you will have been prepared to suffer forever because of your sin against him. So tell me all about your righteousness now, right? Our righteousness doesn't declare our own glory. It declares the glory of God that raised us to new life despite our wickedness. We don't perform our righteousness for the approval of man and we don't do it as evidence to God that we're worthy for salvation. We're not. Christ alone is worthy, but because he has been sent for us and died for us and because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are freed from sin and able to do what is pleasing to God. And so it should be our pleasure to do so. Yeah? Just for him. Just because we love him. And when we do that, whether it's giving to the needy, the specific example that we have here, whether it's giving to the needy, uh, whether it's, you know, just, just lay out being a good mother at home, faithful to disciple this little church that you have at home, right? Being faithful in our marriages. These small little pieces of faithfulness and obedience, when they're done out of a motivation for love for our Father, the only satisfaction we need in all of that is and should be to know that God sees us and smiles. And he's doing something with it. That's enough, isn't it? Is that enough for us? It must be. That's what Jesus is teaching us here. Your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Do you believe him? Do you believe Do you believe that your heavenly father is a father who actually delights in blessing his children? That's what we're told all over scripture. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't stand looking disapprovingly on us and, and standing with his arms crossed and scowling, waiting to pounce on us when we make a mistake. You know, if you grew up with a father like that, I'm really sorry. I really am. My heart breaks for you, but that is not what your heavenly father is like. He, when you fall, he picks you up. 
He dresses your wounds. He, he, he does correct you, though. He doesn't coddle you in your rebellion and in your ignorance and in your, your bad decisions. And He's patient with you. He shows you how to avoid that pitfall in the future because he cares for you. So he gives you instruction. He disciplines you. But he assures you of his steadfast love. He, he sends you on your way again and says, make me proud. Is that motivation enough for us? I'm more and more convinced that the reason we as Christians do not experience the richness of the Christian life is our unbelief. I'm not talking about unbelief in God in terms of salvation. Unbelief in his promises. We're kind of like teenagers that get too big for our britches, right? We got it all figured out. We start doubting what our parents are telling us, doubting what they say. We think they don't know what they're talking about. I want to ask you a question this morning, and I want you to answer in your heart honestly, okay? Are you guilty of taking God's word with a grain of salt? Do you believe, but not so much that it makes a difference? Not so much that you take action or are motivated to act on it. I do. Y'all, what would happen if we stopped being shy about what the Bible tells us about rewards? What would happen if we believed that these, these promises are true, not just one day? I'm going to pray right now, and I want you to pray with me with a whole heart that we would have faith like a child to believe our Father's promises to us are true and that it would be our pleasure to please him with righteous living that he tells us the world will take notice of and glorify him because of. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help our unbelief. We have so many promises to us in your word that we just don't know what to do with them. I pray that you'd help us to believe them. Help us to pray them. Help us to believe that you will never fail. Help us to believe that you are always with us, that you are kind and compassionate and remember our sin no more. Help us to remember 
and believe that we are designed for a purpose. God, help us to believe that your presence brings us joy, that there's blessing here on this day that you have set apart from the rest. Help us to believe that you promise to strengthen us and to help us in our times of need, in our times of despair. Help us to believe that you will teach us and make us wise. And God, help us to believe not only the promises after our death, Lord, but God, help us to believe that we can trust you all the way to the grave from now until then. And yes, Lord, that our reward would be great in the last day. I ask this in the name of your Son. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.